Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, property crime is on the rise in DC, and there's an aspect to it that you might not be familiar with, performance crime, where young people steal things as part of viral social media content. Washington Post reporter Emily Davies explains what the city is doing about it. Today's Wednesday, September 13th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. Emily, property crime is up 29% this year, which is kind of a lot. And I've heard that it's rumored to be linked to viral social media videos of young people committing crimes. Can you paint us a picture of what is exactly happening in some of these videos that might be linked to the rise in crime? There are a few videos that have gone viral from CVSs, from Walgreens, from other convenience stores across DC that show young people often running into these stores and piling merchandise into trash bags and then running out. And it appears in those videos, like employees at said locations are sort of just standing idly by and letting these thefts take place. What kind of things are they going for? Like, are they, do you get the sense that they're going for expensive, big ticket items? Or is it genuinely just like, what can we grab and leave with? It does seem to be much more of the latter. What can we get quickly and what can we get a lot of? I'm sure there are various items that resell more easily than others. And so I imagine that people committing these thefts are thinking that through, but I personally don't have insight into their um, headspace at the time of the theft. What do we know about the people behind these crimes? They're often young. They're often in groups. And they happen really all over the city. And I think that is one of the distinguishers between violent crime and property crime in DC. Violent crime is also up. And to people like the mayor and many DC residents, that's actually more concerning than a rise in property crime because violent crime can often put people's lives at risk. But property crime can be less discriminatory almost and and sort of hit every ward in DC and it can puncture bubbles of safety that exist around D.C. and show them that crime is real and it's happening in D.C. One thing I was thinking is that when young people start going back to school, does that historically have any impact on crime? Yeah, that's a good point. Summer historically is by far the worst time for crime. Kids are out of school. They are bored. They don't have as much supervision and violence surges. And we certainly did see that this summer. So fall could be a little bit better in D.C. That certainly has been the case in the past. I don't know if we can link that necessarily to initiatives 
or programs, but I do think the ebb and flow of daily life could help, if that makes sense. There have also been what I would call maybe cosmetic approaches to addressing surges in crime that maybe helped out. For example, at a CVS in Spring Valley, after a series of thefts, they put an armed security guard there as sort of a deterrent. And it did seem like that helped a bit. So I think when we look at what we're doing as the District of Columbia to address crime, be it violent or property crime, we need to look at the full patchwork and then we need to compare it to the numbers over a set period of time. That's how I try to evaluate what's going on here. That makes a lot of sense. And it's important to make sure that we're really telling the full story about what initiatives work and what initiatives don't work, even if there is a dip in crime that happens around the same time. Exactly. I also wonder about the performance aspect of this. Obviously, these kids are posting these crimes on social media. So how much does that visibility and the desire for visibility affect the way that this is playing out in the city? The link between social media and crime, whether it's property crime or violent crime, is intensely interesting. And researchers, experts, police, community members are really trying to understand it. There's certainly a contagion effect. You can see it in some TikTok trends, like the car thefts of Hyundais and Kias. People started stealing them. People started recording these videos, sort of explaining how to do it. And then it took off. And all of a sudden, cars everywhere were being stolen. Same thing can be said about carjackings, which I know isn't property crime, but is another form of crime here in D.C. that people get really concerned about. I've talked to community members who were like, yeah, when I was a kid, there was another wave of carjackings because it was just sort of the thing to do. So it's contagious. And when social media shows these crimes, it makes it easier for them to be replicated in certain ways. Saying that, I think, risks putting so much blame on these children and teenagers who are posting videos on social media. And I would say it's important to remember that the root of of crime isn't social media. It's poverty. It's a lack of education. It's desperation. It's a real um, desire to belong somewhere and not see a future for yourself beyond the next day. And then social media can kind of amp up that tension in different ways. I'm really glad that you said that because I think that it, when reporting on social media and young people, it's so easy to just be like, it's those damn phones. Like social media, TikTok is really making the kids crazy. And there might be shades of that, but that is just the tip of the iceberg of what's happening. It, it does not paint a clear enough picture about what's happening with these young people, how it's impacting the overall feel of the city. It's such an easy answer to a problem that is actually very complex. Right. It puts blame only on the people who are posting and resharing the videos and committing the crimes. And it's much harder for us societally to look at ourselves and say, how do we as a city, how do we as a government, how do we as a person living in Ward 3, like contribute or share responsibility in this problem of crime? When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return. 
which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How have social media platforms been responding to this? Have they taken any action or what's their, what's been their response? So social media is also used as a tool through which law enforcement can identify perpetrators of crime, victims of crime, and sort of bring these cases to close. So, so arrest people, ultimately. There's a division at the D.C. Police Department that focuses entirely really on social media posts on videos exactly like the ones that we're talking about and uses them as tools. A similar practice is happening among violence interrupters or people who are more community focused, less law enforcement heavy, who are similarly trying to interrupt crime to stop violence before it happens. They're monitoring social media channels like YouTube, like TikTok, like Instagram to see if they can catch disputes or tension before they erupt and turn violent. Some people have pointed to platforms like YouTube where creators can get paid for content that generates a lot of clicks. And some of that content can be violent in nature. And so there are questions about what sort of responsibility a platform like YouTube might bear in that realm. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot is like, it's not just that young people are uploading videos of them breaking the law or behaving in ways that are dangerous to themselves and others, but are platforms and algorithms boosting that content? Are they incentivizing it through payment and engagement? And I wonder if that's sort of what's happening here, that these young people wouldn't be posting these videos if they weren't getting some sort of validation, whether it's just lots of likes or lots of views or something else from posting them. It's a tricky thing because we're talking about walking that line again between freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and when that can become dangerous. And I think that is a question that depending on what side of the equation you sit on, you might have really strong feelings about. It's litigated, it's playing out in the legal system, but it's the hard question. I know that one of the tactics the city is doing is a curfew for young people. Is the city actually enforcing that curfew and is it helping? We're looking into that. I think we don't know yet. I will say that the city has actually had a curfew for youth for a long time that has been enforced to varying degrees. So they sort of rolled out this initiative like it was new, but it's maybe new only in that it's now the enforcement is concentrated in certain areas. I've talked to a few community people about this um, who are torn because they want their young people to stay inside, but they don't necessarily think that the government should have a right to crack down on certain streets and not on others. 
So it's tricky. We're looking into whether or not it's working. And I think we'll see. Beyond youth curfews, how is the city reacting to the spike in property crime? The mayor has said that crime, property crime and violent crime is her number one priority. And she's been very clear about that for a long time. We have a new police chief who has also talked about quality of life crimes. And I think when we talk about property crime, we need to understand that these crimes often are talked about as quality of life crimes, which means that it's something that affects people across the city's day-to-day movement. You might shop at CVS earlier than you did before. You might not go at all. Maybe you go to a different CVS than you went to before. And those little changes can really affect the way that people feel about the city that they live in. And for the mayor, that affects most of her constituents. And so she's really concerned about making sure that we're driving down those numbers. She's talked a lot about supporting the police department, about recruiting, getting more officers on the streets. But when push comes to shove, the police chief has said that, you know, she wants to put more foot patrols in areas with most violent crime. So that isn't necessarily the same areas where there's a lot of property crime. So the city's talking about it. Leadership's talking about it. We have a new um, piece of emergency legislation that's been in place for a little while now that tries to make it easier for judges to detain certain people while they're waiting for their trials. So it's a hodgepodge. It's a patchwork. I don't think anybody in the city would say, here's our one thing we're doing to address property crime, but it's certainly a top priority for everybody involved. Yeah, I know one of the things that the city was doing was like the make of cars, Kias, are like uniquely susceptible to theft. And those were the cars that some of those social media videos were illustrating how to break into them, how to steal them. Were they doing anything for Kia owners to like help them not just get their cars stolen? So DC partnered with car companies that have been targeted by these viral thefts to hand out anti-theft technology for free to people who own those cars. So that was one example of an effort that the city made to address a singular property crime issue that was brought to their attention. Again, I I think we'll have to see if that's working, if that's really, if, if car owners are utilizing those resources and then if they're successfully stopping car thefts, uh, that's a question. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the Kia upgrades, the youth, like enforcing the youth curfew, changes in how the city and law enforcement can detain youth. Like, are all of these things actually going to help? You know, if you were to read the tea leaves a little bit, what do you think? So I spend a lot of time looking at numbers because I think often they can answer or help answer questions that feel daunting and subjective. They can provide one way of understanding what's happening. Property crime has been up by about 29% for a long time now. Violent crime has also been up for a long time now. And so this sort of throw spaghetti at the wall approach that we're seeing, to me so far, hasn't worked very well. Now, the mayor's emergency legislation is relatively new. The police chief is new. She hasn't even been formally confirmed yet by the city council. So I do think we can look at this point, maybe through mid-October, when the emergency legislation expires, to see if that approach bore out in any way. But so far, I wouldn't say, honestly, I'm particularly optimistic just because we've seen these numbers stagnate. Emily, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was great. 
Before you go, here's some quick news. Metro is considering adding numbers and letters to the system's color-coded line names, a page out of New York's book, perhaps. But it's starting with a smaller change, updating signs to include directional indicators like west toward Virginia. Also, the Food and Drug Administration approved COVID-19 vaccines that treat the new dominant strains. These new shots should be available to the public soon. And Chelsea Ceruzzo told us on the podcast that D.C. is already working to get a supply for residents. Check out our show notes if you want to hear more. And lastly, Amtrak wants immediate control over Union Station and made its case in court this week. The railroad company says it'll revitalize the station faster than the private business that currently runs it. There's an ongoing eminent domain case in the courts, but Amtrak says a quicker takeover will allow it to advance a series of projects critical to rail operations along the East Coast. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from across the city. Talk to you soon. 